Want to know a secret? Secrets are intriguing. That's my secret. I mean, how many of you were curious and perked up when I said, want to know a secret? Secrets are intriguing. I mean, just think about your response when somebody says to you, hey, I got a secret. Your ear perks up. Maybe your, your heart rate quickens a little. Well, I have a list of a few things that are secret, unknown, and honestly, they kind of intrigue me. UFOs. I mean, most of them I know can be explained, but there's some that can't. The Loch Ness Monster. I personally believe Nessie is real. Area 51. What happened to Jimmy Hoffa? And what's up with the Bermuda Triangle? And is there really a Bigfoot? Secrets are intriguing. The unknown is intriguing. And you know, that statement can be applied to the Bible. There's so much I want to know about the Bible. I can't wait to one day sit down with Jesus and ask him to explain some things. Like, what really happened when Satan rebelled? Or did the tree of life, how did it give us eternal life? Or did we actually have guardian angels? Or is it true that Goliath had four brothers? But let's be honest, by the time I get to the point where I can sit down with Jesus to ask any of those questions, will I really care? I'm sitting down with Jesus. You know, these secrets are intriguing, yes, but are they really all that important? There are many things from the Bible that we're not privy to. And it's intriguing to ponder the mysteries of the Bible, but there's a point when pondering such things can become unhealthy. We're better off spending our efforts on what the Bible has revealed and put our hope in that truth. I'm not saying we can't ponder the mysteries, but we're better off pondering what has been revealed. You know, last week we introduced the topic of parables and how parables reveal the kingdom of God. We're going to continue that discussion this week. We're going to deal with three parables from Mark chapter 4, and each of these parables reveals a secret about the kingdom of God. So follow along with me, if you will. I'm going to go back to verse 21 of chapter 4. This is Jesus speaking, and he says... He said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This parable reveals our first secret this morning, and that is this. The kingdom of God illuminates the human heart. The kingdom of God illuminates the human heart. 
What Jesus is doing in this first parable is he's using the image of a lamp to communicate a truth. Now, no one would light a lamp and put it under a basket or a bed. That defeats the purpose of the lamp, which is to give light, not to mention that's a recipe for disaster. Lamps in the first century would have been made of, would have been small and made of clay. And interestingly enough, light was very important to the Israelites, very important to the Jews. It is actually believed that the Jewish people would let their lamps shine even all through the night because they felt safer when there was light. If that's the truth, then this sheds light, no pun intended, on verses like Proverbs 31, 18, when talking about the excellent wife reads, her lamp does not go out at night. In other words, it's indicating that she's attentive to keeping the house lit as a means of comfort to her family. So when Jesus says, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or a bed, the idea to the first century world would be ridiculous. I mean, you might even be able to hear the crowd kind of chuckling at that. It's meant to be put on a lampstand. Or back then, sometimes they had a small shelf jetting out from the wall where they would put the lamp and it would give light to the whole house. So in this parable, Jesus is using the idea of the lamp to refer to himself. And that's a truth that we see in Scripture. John 8, 12 reads, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light that shines in the dark and exposes the surrounding. Look at verse 22. <clears throat> Excuse me. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest nor is anything secret except to come to light. Now, at first glance, that verse may sound a little confusing, but if we keep it in the context, remember we're dealing with light illuminating human hearts, so this verse is speaking about more and more illumination. The light, of course, is a metaphor for Jesus, who is the light. He's spreading the message of the gospel. That's what we've been talking about for several weeks. And this gospel message, which thrusts us into the kingdom of God when we receive it, it brings light. Receiving Jesus enlightens our souls like bringing a lamp into a dark room. Whatever is hidden in that room will be exposed. So whatever is hidden in the human heart will likewise be exposed by the gospel. When you became a citizen of the kingdom of God, your heart was illuminated, but it will be further and further illuminated as we live this life. Now, just remember, when I say the word heart, I'm not talking about the organ that pumps blood throughout the body. In biblical thought, the heart was the seat of the mind, emotions, and will. It's the whole of the inner person. The heart is the true you, you might say. When Christ comes into your life, your heart is exposed. In other words, we see the wickedness of our sin. We see the depth of our sin. And we see our desperate need for a savior. We see areas in our life that are not in conformity with the life God calls us to live. That's the illumination of the heart. And that's done by the gospel. Now follow me in verse 24. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
Now, this might sound a little tricky, but again, keep the context. We're talking about illumination of the heart. Jesus is talking about listening to and applying the truth. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. Think of measure here as application or attitude. With how much you apply the truth or with the attitude that you receive the truth to that same level, you will be blessed by the truth. This is what the verses are saying. To the degree you listen to and incorporate the truth into your lives, to that level, you will be blessed. Said another way, the more you are attentive to the, le- to the gospel, to the greater degree of spiritual insight you will receive. We have a saying, we reap what we sow. If a farmer is attentive to his crop, he'll reap what he sowed and possibly more. If he's lazy and negligent, his crop will be minimal. That same idea is true in our spiritual lives. If we are attentive to the gospel message, if we are engaging in our spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible study and fellowship with other believers, then we will reap spiritual insight and blessings into our lives. We will be illuminated with the truths of God's word and thus our spiritual lives will blossom. That's the idea. Of course, the opposite is true. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, for those who reject the truth, even whatever little truth they've been exposed to will not benefit them. The kingdom of God illuminates the human heart. Now, there's two sides to this. There's illumination on the inside, but then there's illumination that needs to go through us to the outside. Just as Jesus is the lamp here, so were the disciples. So are all of us who follow Jesus Christ. We are lamps. If Jesus was capital L lamp, think of yourself as lowercase l, lamp. Just as Jesus shined the light of the gospel while he was here on earth, so we are to shine the light of the gospel as his representatives. There's both an internal and external illumination of the believer. People come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and the gospel is going to continue to change those hearts, and at the same time, Christians are going to shine his message to others. By the way, this is further development from what we saw last week at the end of the parable. Look back real quick at verse 20. We ended last week on these words, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. That good soil, that those were submissive with submissive hearts that receive the message of the gospel, they bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. What does that look like? That's the illumination of the gospel. That's the illumination of the gospel inward and the illumination of the gospel outward. They bear fruit. Now, what's fruit? It's production. It's production. It's both internal production as our faith increases and we grow in Christ, and it's external production through a life lived in obedience to the Lord. That's fruit. Jesus is expounding on that 30 and 60 and 100 fold. As the gospel shines its light on the inside of us and through us to the outside, fruit in relation to the kingdom of God is produced. So the heart is illuminated by the gospel. Now, let's be honest. We can fear this illumination. 
We can, even as Christians. We can fear what the gospel is going to expose. After all, we know that our hearts are sinful, even though we don't know the depth of it. We know our hearts are sinful, and we can fear the illumination of the gospel. We can even fight against the Holy Spirit as he seeks to illuminate and illuminate and further illuminate the darkness of our heart. We can resist him. But friends, let me warn you, that hurts us. It hurts our spiritual growth. It hurts our development. It hurts our relationships around us because if we're fighting the spirit within, that's gonna cause us to react negatively towards other people. And it also will hurt our witness. So let me challenge you, and it's painful. And I know how painful it can be to allow God to illuminate the darkness in our heart, but let me challenge you, let him. And even ask yourself this question, what areas of my heart am I resisting the illumination of the kingdom of God? Secrets of the kingdom of God. Verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Our first secret was the kingdom of God illuminates the human heart. Here's secret number two. The kingdom of God develops mysteriously. The kingdom of God develops mysteriously. The second secret is that the kingdom of God is somewhat of a secret. It develops mysteriously. Just as a farmer scatters seed and waits for it to grow, so the kingdom of God works similarly. Now, during planting season, a first century farmer would walk through his fields and simply toss the seed. We saw that last week with the parable of the sower. This parable tells us that the farmer would then sleep and rise. In other words, he's doing his daily life. He's going about his daily routine. And the seed sprouts and grows on its own. The farmer doesn't know how it does this, only that it does it. Now, we've got to remember, first century world, the science of horticulture was not nearly as advanced as it is today. There was a lot they did not know about germination. They simply knew that you put a seed in the ground, and after a while, you get a plant. Jesus further explains the observable growth process in verse 28 when he says, the earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Now, that would not be lost on the farmers because that was observable. They knew about the growth process. What they did not know was how the seed did this. The seed does its thing apart from the farmer. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. The text says it does this by itself. Now, yes, we understand that watering is necessary, sunlight's necessary, weeding, those kinds of things are necessary. But the farmer, see, he doesn't coax the seed into growth. It just grows. And there's a mystery to it. And the comparison being made here is that the kingdom of God is similar. As people receive the good news of Jesus and spread it to others, the word takes root in people's heart. It germinates and grows. We don't know how. Only that God's word works. Isaiah 55, 11, you can read this on the screen. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. 
It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is a spiritual process. We don't know how God changes hearts. And let me add this. We as humans can do nothing to change a person's heart. We do not have that capability. All we know is that God's word, when sown in good soil, a heart that is submissive, will germinate and grow. The process is mysterious, but it works. Now, let me add something here. I said we can't change the human heart, and that's true, and that applies to ourselves. You can't change your own heart. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves trying to change our heart. But we don't have the power to do that. I mean, we can't even comprehend everything that goes into shaping us. Did you realize that? There are so many factors that go into shaping who we are, into shaping our heart, we can't even identify them all. Things like personality, we're born a certain way, how we were raised, our childhood, our ethnicity, our education, our religious exposure, our relationships, our decisions. On top of that, we have struggles. We have sin patterns. There's so much that goes into shaping who we are. We can't even comprehend all of that. And if you woke up tomorrow and said to yourself, I'm not going to be this person anymore. I'm going to be somebody else. Admittedly, you might be able to change some behaviors, yes, but you'll never change your own heart. You can't do that. I can't do it. We can't undo all that's gone into shaping us. Only God can do that. Yes, we have a responsibility to submit. I'm not saying we don't. Yes, we need to listen to Jesus. Yes, we need to be in the word. Yes, we need to seek him in prayer. Yes, we need to strive to love others. Absolutely. Of course, we're responsible for our behavior. I'm not saying we're not. But we don't have the power to change the human heart. Only God can do that. And that is mysterious. But it's true. How else do we explain such radical, radical transformations? And you've seen this, maybe in your own life, maybe in other people's lives. How many stories have you heard of the mean, abusive, ungodly person who after accepting the gospel was utterly changed? That doesn't just happen. That's the word of God. Yes, I know, there are situations where people have quote-unquote mended their ways, but that's behavior modification. That's not a change of heart. Josh McDowell is a Christian apologist. He's a defender of the faith, and he has a radical testimony of how he came to Christ. Part of his testimony has to do with his deadbeat, no-good, abusive father. His father was the town drunk. He was an embarrassment to the family. He would beat Josh's mother, he was a piece of work. But after Josh's conversion to, sal to salvation, he had an opportunity to witness to his own father. His father accepted Christ and the man was changed. Can I explain that? I can't explain that. Except to say that God's word does not return void. It changes lives. How does it do that? I don't know. But I can tell you, it does. The kingdom of God works in a mysterious way. You know, as a first century farmer couldn't tell you how exactly the seed does what it does, so the believer can't say exactly how the kingdom of God does what it does. 
I can just tell you by receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is, by repenting of sin and placing your faith in him, by trusting that his crucifixion and death was necessary for your sin and believing that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a change of heart that happens there. And I urge anyone who has not done that to do so today. And if you have more questions on that, please come and talk to me. I'll be here after church. For Christians, how does this parable encourage or challenge us? Well, it encourages us in this way, that it's not our job to change the heart. Nothing you do, nothing you say, no great act of service will change the hearts of the people around you. You can't do that. You can only point the way. The parable challenges us to simply scatter the seed. That, that means let your life be a testimony. Let your words speak of the change that Jesus wrought in you. Be ready always to share the gospel. Scatter the seed, but leave the growth to God. So let me ask, are there some ways that you can scatter some seed this week? Now look, at, look with me at the end of this parable, verse 29. Jesus says, but when the grain is ripe, at once he, that is the farmer, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. In the parable, the sower has waited till the grain is ripe and it's ready for harvest. He then uses a sickle, which you've probably seen as an instrument with a, with a, a handle and a curved blade used to chopping down the, the grain. When he has that sickle, this is pointing the time when those who are within the kingdom of God will be harvested. Now, it's interesting enough, this idea of using a sickle to harvest the earth is also found in Joel 3.13 and in Revelation 14.15. Both of those references refer to the Lord reaping the earth for judgment. It's directed toward unbelievers. But judgment is not the end result of the believer. In this parable, when believers are reaped, in other words, at the end of time, possibly this refers to the rapture. When that happens, believers are harvested for eternal joy with their Savior forever and ever. And that's the end result for those in the kingdom of God. The harvest is coming, and for us, that's not a scary thing. We're talking about the secrets of the kingdom of God. It illuminates human hearts it grows mysteriously. Lastly, the kingdom of God expands from obscurity to prominence. The kingdom of God expands from obscurity to prominence. Read along with me in verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The kingdom of God expands from obscurity to prominence. As Jesus explains the kingdom of God, he expounds on how the kingdom is starting with just him and a few followers. It starts with just Jesus and a few of his followers. That's pretty obscure. But it's not going to stay that way. The kingdom of God is going to explode. Hundreds and thousands and ten thousands 
and hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of believers all over the world as we see it today will come into the kingdom of God. Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. Now, what is that? Jesus calls it the smallest seed. The mustard, also called the black mustard, is a type of shrub that grows in Palestine. This is not referring to the mustard flower that we think of in America. This is a shrub. Jesus is referring to a seed that his audience would understand is the smallest seed they're familiar with. It's really tiny. And when planted, the seed becomes a shrub which can grow anywhere from 4 to 15 feet in height. That makes it the largest of any garden plant, as Jesus says. And this shrub would be large enough for birds to take shelter in its shade. So what Jesus is saying here is that from an obscure little tiny seed, the most prominent garden plant grows. What he's doing here is comparing how the kingdom of God, which at this point in history, again, is just Jesus and a few followers, is going to grow in size and influence and become prominent throughout the earth. Jesus had several followers, of course, at this point. But in comparison to the religious system of the day, in comparison to Judaism, it was obscure. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews following the Old Testament law. And think of Rome, the great power of earth at this time, certainly by human standards. Jesus' little kingdom is dwarfed by comparison. But it ain't going to stay that way. After Jesus rises and ascends, his disciples, then apostles, Preach the kingdom of God. In one sermon in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the people and 3,000 souls are saved. And as you keep reading through the book of Acts, people come to salvation by the droves. The kingdom of God just explodes. And then think of all through history how the kingdom of God has been taken to this country and to that country until now there are members of the kingdom of God all over the earth. We are living at the culmination of this parable. We are living at the time of the full-grown mustard shrub. The kingdom of God has gone from obscurity to prominence, just as he promised. Now the birds that Jesus mentions here is most likely a picture of the Gentiles that are included in the kingdom. And we can say that because the imagery of birds taking shelter in trees is used elsewhere in scripture. In Ezekiel 17, God is saying that he will plant a cedar tree in Israel, which represents the coming Messiah. And then verse 23 reads this. You can see this on the screen. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. These birds that are represented here in this, in Ezekiel, are other nations that are blessed by the coming Messiah. So you take that same interpretation and apply it here to Jesus' parable, and that's why we say it likely means that Gentiles will be blessed by the coming of the kingdom of God. It's not meant for just the Jews. We are included you and I who have accepted Jesus as Savior are part of the kingdom of God, and that is worth getting excited about. And do you know what this means? It means the kingdom of God is impregnable. It's unstoppable. The kingdom, which began with a few fishermen and a few others, 
has spread over the entire face of the earth. The kingdom of God has crashed through religious barriers, through social barriers, through cultural barriers, through ethnic barriers. It shatters philosophies. It has survived attempts to destroy it. It has thrived during persecution. And it will not stop until the king himself comes and sets it up tangibly. That's the kingdom of God. And you, if you are a believer in Jesus, are a part of the kingdom of God. You are a part of a force that cannot be defeated. You are on the side of a power that will not succumb to another. The kingdom of God will survive in the hearts of believers despite who or what comes against it. Nothing and no one will defeat the kingdom of God. You are a part of an everlasting, all-powerful, non-stop empire that will dominate this world with peace and love and joy for all the ages to come. So take heart. Whatever's happening in our world today, and I admit it's concerning, but whatever's happening in our world today will not overcome the kingdom of God. We will not be defeated because our king cannot be defeated. So come what may. You know, there's an old Petra song that goes like this. Bring on the lions and heat up the fire. It's not enough to stop this man's desire. Come what may, the kingdom of God will not fail. Now the text wraps up with these words. Look at verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. I would have loved to have been part of those conversations in verse 34. But here, we're reminded that Jesus spoke in parables both to reveal and conceal. Remember we talked about that last week? The parables were meant to reveal the kingdom of God, but conceal the truth from the hard-hearted. So to the crowd, Jesus spoke in parables, urging them, as we see throughout this message, urging them to listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And if they listen, if they truly sought to untangle the message behind the parable, they would hear the life-giving message of the gospel. If they chose not to listen, then the parables would remain nothing more than riddles and stories. And the same is true for us today. If we listen to the message of the gospel, we will hear and be changed by the life-giving message. But if we ignore, if we turn a deaf ear, we lose out on eternity. And as Christians, if we turn a deaf ear, we lose out on spiritual blessing. Why did Jesus explain everything to his disciples? Because they sought him. They sought after him. They wanted to know. I said earlier, you can't change the human heart, not even your own. But what you can do is seek after the one who can change the human heart. And this is true both for unbelievers and the believer. When the unbeliever releases their hold on trying to save themselves and instead embraces Jesus, change happens. But you see, it doesn't stop there. We don't just get saved by grace through faith. 
We live the Christian life by grace through faith. It's constantly going back to Jesus. You know, maybe you came to Christ by grace. Maybe you put your faith in Jesus at some point in the past. Hallelujah. Maybe you understood that there was nothing you could do to earn your salvation. It was simply accepted by faith. Praise God. But then maybe at some point you tried to be a good Christian. By following the do's and the don'ts, you tried to do your best. Friends, that doesn't change our hearts. That locks us into a system of legalism, which is trying to follow a list of do's and don'ts. And that's not what Jesus wants for you. And it's not the way to change our heart. Just like the disciples, Jesus wants you to come to him. He wants you to depend on him. He wants you to entrust your heart to him. And we do that by going back to the gospel. We do that by trusting that he's already done all the do's and already rejected all the don'ts. That's what the gospel is. It's Christ in my place. At the cross, yes, but also throughout his life. He took my sin. He gives me his righteousness. So you and I don't get do right to get on God's good side. You and I don't do right to earn his favor. You and I don't do right to change our hearts. We do right because Christ has already done it. We do right because we already have his favor. We do right as an outflow of what he's already done by transforming us from death to life. So those other secrets that I mentioned at the top of the sermon, Area 51, Bigfoot, they may be intriguing, but they don't have the power like the secrets of the kingdom of God. And you and I are privy to those secrets. The kingdom of God illuminates the heart. It develops mysteriously, and it expands from obscurity to prominence. Those are secrets worth knowing. Those are secrets worth exploring because those secrets have the power to change lives. Bow with me in prayer. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you revealed the secrets of the kingdom of God to those who would listen. Lord, give us ears to hear, ears to hear your message. Illuminate our hearts, even the deep, dark places we don't want to go. Do your work, as mysterious as it is because it creates real and lasting change. Thank you that the kingdom didn't remain in obscurity, but took prominence all over the earth. Lord, help us also to spread the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us boldness and opportunities to share your message of hope. With each passing day, the time grows short. Help us take advantage of whatever time we have left. We thank you, Lord, and praise you in the name of Jesus.